Okay, um, we've changed the order around a little bit, um, mainly because um, the next talk on congenital heart disease is a bit of a, an epic um, topic, which we want to really try and explain really well for you so that you don't have to keep struggling with it every single year. Um, this is a bit lighter. Um, I am, quick disclaimer, I am not a pediatrician, I am not a pediatric surgeon, I'm not a pediatric ENT specialist. But I'm going to try and tell you, in about half an hour, everything that you probably need to know about ear, ears, ears, ears and throats. Um, I'm not going to talk about the, the nose so much, because it's not so uh, common, the conditions of that in, in kids. Okay, so once again, just like the febrile child, this is an important area, because it is common. What we've tried to do today is talk about all of the stuff that is really, really common and that you're going to see lots of. So what I'm going to look at, I'm going to look at otitis media. I'm going to look at tonsillitis, coryza, or the common cold, and allergic rhinitis. I don't think I'm going to talk about that. Okay. We love systems. So once again, I was, I was sort of looking around and I, I noticed that nearly no one has followed our advice about writing stuff down the right side of the page, but maybe have a go this time. Okay, so let's talk about common cold, um, upper respiratory tract infection, very, very common. This is the main reason that kids with fevers present. It is classified on the ENT and it tends to be mild and self-limiting. Okay, the major, um, you're probably getting really fed up of learning these lists of um, viruses, but what you'll see uh, is that you'll actually get, uh, you'll start noticing that there are certain patterns uh, with um, which viruses cause which conditions, um, and also that there's a lot of crossover of them as well. My advice to you is just learn one or two for each condition, okay? And in some conditions, is an obvious, you know, a very important one. Here, if you're going to learn one, learn rhinovirus, okay? So rhinovirus is probably the most common, but these other ones um, can do it as well. RSV, what's RSV most associated with? Bronchiolitis, yeah. Okay, and what is it? Inflammation of the mucous membranes of the nasal cavity. That's what coryza or common cold is. Okay, once again, clinical features always divide them up into general and specific things. Any unwell child can get general features such as this. So lethargy, malaise, reduced fever, headache, uh, reduced feeding, sorry, headache and a, a fever. Okay, none of these things are specific to a common cold, but they are relatively specific to a child being unwell in some way. Okay, so if you, um, the other one that we probably go here would be vomiting. If you had a common cold, you probably wouldn't vomit, okay? But kids can do, okay? You probably really wouldn't get much lethargy and malaise either, but kids do, okay? So they're more sensitive. Specifically, nasal congestion um, and discharge is sort of major symptoms. Investigations, well, none. You're not gonna be doing a set of venous bloods on a kid with a common cold, I hope or an x-ray. Treatment, once again, is directed towards the parents who have come in, reassurance education. Symptomatic treatments, what do I mean here? Fluids, encouraging fluids, yep. Paracetamol and which one's better? Ibuprofen, why? Lasts longer, yeah, okay. Can you think of a situation where you wouldn't give ibuprofen? Obviously, allergy is the obvious one, but another one. Asthma, yep. 
And one more. Yes, caused by so dehydration. Okay, the, the, if, if a kid is very, very dehydrated, you don't give ibuprofen because ibuprofen can cause renal toxicity or increase the amount of renal toxicity. Um, so that's the situation where you need to be careful with ibuprofen. Okay. Um, anything else? Symptomatic management. Cool, tepid sponging. Yes. What would you give the parent? Information leaflets. Okay. The site where you get information leaflets is called patient.co.uk. Okay. I'm not just saying that because it's, I mean, it's obviously a quite specific thing, but it's also a great site for you guys as well. It has some really, really good articles written specifically for doctors and students on all manner of conditions, and it's got patient articles as well. Patient.co.uk. Add it to your list of, of sites that you use to prepare for essays and, and general revision and stuff. Okay. No definitive therapy. It's a self-limiting thing. Okay. So common cold is easy. Otitis media, really, really common. It's inflammation infection of the middle ear. And what we mean by that is the area between the tympanic membrane and the inner ear. It's very, very common. If you want to know a figure, that is it. But I would advise you not to learn that, but focus on that. It's very, very common. And it tends to be in um, children uh, less than, of less than two years of age, but it can present at any time. Okay, so you do see lots and lots of kids presenting with otitis media, but this is the major age. You've got lots of different types of otitis media. You've got acute, you've got this rather bizarre thing, otitis media with effusion, and finally chronic suppurative otitis media. Okay. Risk factors. Can anyone think of any risk factors for otitis media? Yep. So parental, I mean, we're going to go on to talk about glue air, but you're quite right. Parental smoking is uh, associated with an increased incidence of otitis media. And can anyone think why that might be? Sort of from a pathophysiological point of view. Mucociliary escalator. Yeah. So it damages the mucociliary escalator. You get reduced clearance within the eustachian tube, which is the tube that goes from the middle ear to the back of the throat. Okay. Reduced clearance of secretions that gather an infection um, in, up in, in, um, in viral infections. I've just given you another one. What's another risk factor? Upper respiratory tract infection. Okay, so often a child will come in with their mum and the child will have been complaining of, of features of otitis media um, or be unspecifically unwell. And you'll take a history and the mum will say, oh yeah, little Johnny had a uh, cough and a cold two weeks ago and now he's complaining of this, this, and he's got another cold, and he's a bit seems to be a bit worse. Anything else? Yeah. So, in the only conditions that cause eustachian tube dysfunction, a bit more advanced. This. So, things like Down syndrome can cause it. Any child who has cleft palate as well also tends to have eustachian tube dysfunction. Any other risk factors? Really obvious one. Deformities. Yep, so deformities in the ear. 
um, problems with the ear. If a child has otitis externa, which is um, infection and inflammation in the outer part of the ear that goes from the outside to the, um, to the drum, uh, the external auditory meatus, and that is a risk factor for developing infection within the inner ear. Okay. The other one is just general stuff like immunosuppression and stuff like that. That would you know, obviously cause um, an increased incidence of otitis media. Okay, so pathophysiology is acute infection, often with a preceding common cold, which is why I spoke about the common cold first. It tends to be caused by respiratory viruses and bacteria. Okay, it's about 50-50, the distribution between viruses and bacteria. But importantly, a viral infection that causes inflammation, gathering of secretions in the middle ear and the eustachian tube, predisposes then to a bacterial infection. Can anyone think why that might happen? Yep. Exactly. Okay. That's a common principle throughout medicine. Sort of pools of fluid that shouldn't be in places in the body tend to tend to get infected. Okay. And Mike's going to talk a lot about that um, that principle this afternoon to further expand that for you and other things. Okay. Once again, lots of different bacteria cause it. If you're going to remember one, strep pneumoniae, which we shorten to pneumococcus often. Okay, so once again, we see the same sort of pattern, general features. Kids with otitis media can be quite unwell. Okay, vomiting, sleep disturbance, poor feeding, lethargy, fever. This is not a list that I, you, any of you should be writing down right now. Everyone with a pen put it down. Okay, hopefully you're beginning to realize that these features are not specific. I do not want you to sort of say, okay, otitis media, they get fever, lethargy, poor feeding. Okay, you, what you want to be thinking is, otitis media, the child can become unwell. When, the child, when, ch when children get unwell, they get general features of being unwell, such as fever, lethargy, poor feeding, vomiting, that kind of thing. Okay? And more specific things. So we already know this, proceeding upper respiratory tract, infection. An older child will complain of ear pain. Obviously, our most common group of, of children with otitis media are going to be less than two years old. Remember I said that? Um, so then they probably won't be able to do that but often they will pull at their, their ears. Very young kids can bang their um, heads against the cot, and also hearing loss, but that tends to be um, more acute features tend to present rather than, than hearing loss. We'll talk more about hearing loss in a moment when we talk about other things. Okay. So this is normal. Okay, just... I'm not going to talk about all the different features and the different parts of it, but this is top, this is bottom. Okay, what's this? Yep, handle of the malleus. Okay. That's normal. I want you to picture in your mind. This is not normal. What's going on here? I want one per I'm not going to pick on anyone, okay, but we've had some quite good answers from people. Does anyone want to put up their hand? and just describe what you see. One of the big things that you need to learn to do, and this is going to be a big feature this afternoon when we talk about images, is describing what you see and structuring that in a, a fashion that you know, helps, helps you on the wards and in exams and stuff like that. And it's really obvious. You're all scared, but it's really obvious. Anyone? Yes. Yep. So first of all, start by saying what it is. 
Yeah. So this is a tympanic membrane as viewed through an otoscope. Okay? And then go on to say, yeah, the most obvious thing is that it's red. Okay? That's not red. That's red. Okay? The most obvious thing is that there is, appears to be global erythema around the tympanic membrane. Okay? Anything else? There's an important negative that you need to say. Very good. Okay. So as you can see here, this is nice and shiny. And you've got this, this little bit um, of shiny area here, which is called the light reflex. And here, it's much more dull. Okay? You don't get that light reflex. Another important negative. No effusion. Yep, that's good. No effusion, no pus. This is another one. The coloring is not so great here, but this is very, very red. And this here is a bulging tympanic membrane with lots and lots of pus. Okay. Bacterial or viral? More likely to be bacterial. Okay. Think of that process. You've got the secretions there from the viral infection, stagnant pools of fluid like to gather infection, secondary bacterial infection. Bacterial infection likes to form lots and lots of pus like this. And this is a nasty, nasty case. Okay. So, does anyone want to put all of those things together into a nice spiel? Maybe I'll do it. Can you put up your hand? No, 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 not me. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, this is the eardrum as viewed through an otoscope. The most obvious abnormality is global erythema. There also appears to be loss of the light reflex. I can't see any effusion present or pus. This is most consistent with the diagnosis of acute otitis media. Okay, it's very easy. This one is the same. There appears to be an effusion around the eardrum and there is pus present as well. This is um, consistent with an acute otitis media, possibly a bacterial cause is more likely in this case. Okay, so how do you treat it? We know all about this. I'm not going to go through it again. Antibiotics or no antibiotics? Hmm. The G at GP school, they absolutely love this topic. Absolutely love it. So the explanation to the, the parents who who really want antibiotics for their, for their kid when you actually don't believe that they need them. Actually, antibiotics in acute otitis media are not usually needed. Okay. Even if it's a bacterial infection, they're not necessarily needed. And that doesn't really make sense, but there have been lots of studies done that show that actually, if you give antibiotics, you may perhaps shorten the duration of an episode by maybe a couple of hours at most. Okay? But most of these are self-resolving. Saying that, if a child is really unwell, has got a raging, raging temperature, and has got pus pouring out of their ear, then you're going to find it very difficult not to give antibiotics. Okay? But generally, kids don't need antibiotics. They say that actually you need to treat, you need to treat between 18 and 20 kids with antibiotics for one to get any benefit from them. Okay, so that's quite a lot that you need to treat. And obviously antibiotics are not without side effects. You know, there can be side effects such as allergy, anaphylaxis, a lot of kids get diarrhea and vomiting when they take antibiotics as well. 
and they just don't like to take them. Okay. One strategy that um, is often used is to give a delayed prescription. And this is a really good trick with hepatitis media is to say, okay, I'm going to tell you, you don't need antibiotics, but I'm going to give the power back to you as the parents and say, if little Johnny's not getting better in two days, why don't you take this um, amoxicillin script to the chemist and get given um, some antibiotics then? So give the power back to the patient. Patient-centered care. Do not give decongestants or antihistamines. They don't work. Okay, so what is otitis media with effusion? Otitis media with effusion is essentially the presence of an effusion okay, on the ear, but without any signs of active infection. Okay, So here we can see that, yes, there, this is through an otoscope, this is an eardrum. There are no signs of active infection. It's not red like the other one, horrible. The drum is uh, retracted. There is loss of the light reflex, and this is an effusion on the ear. Okay, these features, retracted drum, loss of light reflex, but no signs of infection. Okay? This is otitis media with effusion. It used to be called, and it's often you'll still um, hear it referred to as this, it used to be called glue ear. It's very, very common and is a very important cause of conductive hearing loss. Why might this be, why is it might it be important if a kid's not hearing? Yeah, speech delay. Okay, so that's going back to the things we spoke about in terms of developmental assessment. Remember the categories of developmental assessment, okay? Gross motor, fine motor, hearing, speech, and language, and social and interactive, okay? If the kid's not hearing, up to 80% of kids actually have an element of this by the age of four years, um, but most of them get better, and this isn't actually a problem, but this is what can happen um, with prolonged otitis media with effusion. And if you want to be really smart, you can learn that that's the rough range of uh, hearing loss um, in this condition. Okay? So we can take a conservative medical surgical approach here. A lot of the time, if you see this and... Uh, even if um, there's, the parents have noticed that the kid isn't responding in the same way um, to, to their name or when playing or when watching television, that kind of thing, you'd still sit on it and wait because most of the cases will resolve by themselves and the effusion will dissipate, conductive hearing loss will disappear. There is no evidence for giving any specific medical therapy. Decongestant, antihistamines, none of that will work. You've probably heard of grommets in severe cases. So if it's not resolving or if there is severe um, limitation of learning and development in the child, then grommets may be inserted. And the idea there is to put a tube into the ear and to allow the effusion to drain out and to stop it reaccumulating. Okay. Sometimes they remove um, lymph nodes, they remove the adenoids and that works. We don't really know why, but it does. Okay, the last thing you need to know about with otitis media is this. Yes? How long do you wait for I think you would probably, so you, I think the figure they usually quote is six months. Okay, and most kids will get better within that time. Obviously, it's very dependent on the situation though. So if there is severe delay or that's causing a lot of distress, then you would refer early. So the last one is chronic suppurative otitis media. And this is where, this is an inflammatory condition 
where there is chronic inflammation of the middle ear and importantly the mastoid cavity as well. So the area surrounding the middle ear, the bony area surrounding the middle ear. And the features of this are otorrhea, okay, which is um, fluid coming out of the ear, which is chronic and recurrent. So kids get periods when their ears are discharging and then periods when they're not. Um, and that is because of perforation. We'll understand a little bit more about that in a second. And they also get conductive hearing loss as well. This is the other important cause of conductive hearing loss um, in kids. Okay. It's not chronic serous otitis media. It's very confusing, the nomenclature, and it changes all the time. But chronic suppurative otitis media, okay, you've got relapses and, and remissions, and you've got perforation. In chronic serous otitis media, you've just got an otitis media with infection, inflammation, no perforation that goes on for a very, very long period of time. Nomenclature is confusing. Okay? And this is the kind of thing that you see. This is a perforation within the um, eardrum. Okay? And as you can see, there are some signs of infection, inflammation, a little bit of um, pus there as well. But the key thing is the perforation. With this condition, we can classify it into what we call safe or unsafe. Okay? Obviously, perforation is there in both cases, but depending upon where the perforation is, we call it safe or unsafe. If the perforation is very high in the eardrum, we term that unsafe. If it's very low, it's safe. Does anyone know why are we talking about safe and unsafe? This is a hard question. It's to do with this thing called a calasteotoma. Okay, what is a calasteotoma? Well, first of all, it's a very stupid name because it's not made of cholesterol and it's not a tumour. So it's, a, it's one of these things in medicine where it's probably got this for historical reasons, but there's no uh, real rationale to it. What it basically is is a collection of epidermal and connective tissue within the middle ear that tends to form because of chronic infection that's present. Okay, so that's why you get it in chronic suppurative otitis media. Now, the problem with that is that tissue does have some, it's not a tumour, but it has some tumour-like properties. It tends to grow independently, and it may be locally invasive and destructive. Okay, now, the middle ear is very, very close to the skull, which is very, very close to the brain. Okay, and if you've got a pussy ball of epidermal and connective tissue that's invading into the bones, you could get meningitis. So that's why we term it safe and unsafe. With perforations that are very, very low, okay, we know, sorry, very, very high, we know that those are associated much more with the formation of this type of um, small collection. And when that does happen, we know that that's a dangerous thing. Okay. On the other hand, if it's a low perforation, then we know that that's okay. And what does it look like? Okay. So here, you can't really see it, but there is a high um, perforation probably up here somewhere. And this structure here is a cholesteatoma. Okay. And it's high, it's unsafe. That thing could invade up into the mastoid cavity, into the brain, cause meningitis. And this is just another example. Here is the external auditory meatus, the eardrum. And as you can see here, this is this nasty uh, calasteotoma which can invade upwards up here 
and affect the brain and all of this bony material around here. And those need to be removed. Okay. So, final topic I'm going to talk about is tonsillitis. Okay. And hopefully you'll know a lot about tonsillitis. Gross picture. Any volunteers to describe what they see? Yes, sir. Yep. Yep. Very good. Brilliant, you just passed finals. Very good. Okay? No, that's it. That's it. If you can do it like that, you, you, that, that, that's at the level of a, of a, of a doctor. Okay? That's perfect. Okay? So what it is, this is an image um, of the throat. I can see the tonsils. They appear to be enlarged and erythematous, and there seems to be a, a, very well, a white exudate coating them. This is consistent with a diagnosis of tonsillitis. Okay? Easy. Is this bacterial or viral? It's more often viral than bacterial. Now, this is one of these situations where medicine doesn't make any sense, because you're thinking right now, well, there's pus on the tonsil, so it should be bacterial. Okay? And I agree with you, and often it is bacterial, but more often it's actually viral. Okay, this is another one. This patient is 16 years old. You decide that because there's quite a lot of pus there, maybe this, this patient comes in, they've got a temperature of 39 degrees. You kind of think, well, that's a bit more consistent with a bacterial infection. They're quite unwell. You know, I want to just cover my bases, give them some antibiotics just in, in case it's a, um, in, a bacterial infection. Um, what antibiotic would you give? Penicillin. Oh, God, you guys are too good. Why wouldn't you give amoxicillin? Yeah, exactly. If it's Epstein-Barr virus or glandular fever, which is much more common at this age group, okay, nearly all, about 90-95% of patients who have Epstein-Barr virus or glandular fever will develop a widespread erythematous rash if you give them amoxicillin. But if you give them penicillin V, they'll be okay. okay? So you treat, if you're going to give an antibiotic, give penicillin, not amoxicillin. You examine the abdomen of this patient, very enthusiastic, young doctor, likes to do a complete examination of all your patients, and you find a mass. What could this be? Splenomegaly, okay? So, an enlarged spleen. Can anyone sort of mumble or talk through features of splenomegaly? How, on clinical examination, do you tell a spleen from a liver? So location, right or left? Tends to be left. Where does it go, the spleen, when it enlarges? That way, yeah. Is it different in, in its shape at all? Tends to be notched, yeah. Is it balotable? What is balotable? Kidneys. Any other features? Moves of respiration, yeah. It does what? Dull. It's dull to percussion. Mike, anything else we missed? No. 
I have to ask him because he's king of surgery. And what blood test might you do if you found that enlarged spleen? Monospot? Yep, very good. What else would you do in a young person with an enlarged spleen? What are you worried about? Lymphoma or leukemias? Okay. Kikuchi syndrome. Yeah, Stephen's very worried about that. Um, so yeah, you need to do a full blood count and a blood film. Okay. So as you can see, it's not just about ENT. Lots of things going on. Okay. This is just to remind you of the lymph nodes of the neck. This is a, a very, very good image that I've stolen from Google Images. Um, your major lymph nodes. This one here, sometimes called the jugular digastric lymph node or tonsillar lymph node, is the one that's most often enlarged in tonsillitis. Okay. So what I often do in a kid that presents with tonsillitis, when I'm doing the lymph nodes, I start there, I work underneath, feeling the submandibular, submental, then I go up to the ears, preauricular, posterior. Kids are great because they actually, in adults, you don't see these preauricular and posterior ones, but kids often get them. And they also get the ones at the back, the occipital lymph nodes as well. So make sure you go all the way around. Then I go down to ferial anterior, posterior cervical. How do you tell the difference? What defines whether it's anterior or posterior? Yeah, so if it's an so sternocleidomastoid runs from sternum up to the mastoid. If it's in front, it's anterior. If it's behind, it's posterior. Okay, you can feel that one yourselves, hopefully. And then supraclavicular as well. Okay, so start tonsillar forward, all the way back, and then down into the neck. Okay, most often this one will be enlarged here. Okay, this eight-year-old child comes in with a very sore throat and a high fever. What's your management plan? What are you going to do? Take a history. Yeah, very, very good. So take a history. Yeah. Do an examination, which you're doing right now. You see this. Anyone want to describe this? Someone's got to be brave. I've had two ex examples now. Yeah, consistent with a Quincy or what's his proper name? Perfect. Another another doctor performance. Okay, so this is the feared complication of tonsillitis, which is the formation of an abscess around the tonsil, which we call a peritonsillar abscess. Okay, it is dangerous because it can get so big that it can cause obstruction of both the airway, okay, so you can't breathe, and also you can't eat either. Obviously, you've got reduced appetite and tonsillitis anyway, but this can get so big that it causes obstruction. The other thing is this can make patients really, really septic. Okay, George Washington died of a Quincy. Okay, it can make you really, really sick. What's your management plan? You pick up the phone and you call the ENT surgeons, because this often needs intravenous antibiotics, and it also needs drainage, okay, which basically involves sticking a scalpel back here and cutting it open and letting all the pus drain out. Okay, let's review. I don't know what we're meant to be reviewing, but 
The final thing I want to talk about is indications for tonsillectomy. Who's had their tonsils removed? Yeah, quite a few, quite a few people. Um, I've had my tonsils removed as well. Um, indications of a tonsillectomy. It, it used to be, in the 90s, it was very, very popular to get any kid that had sort of a couple of episodes of tonsillitis a year had their tonsils removed. Um, and the thinking now is that that's not good. It can affect immune function in some kind of way. There are various studies that suggest that certain infections are, certain infections are more common, certain malignancies are more common. I'm not trying to scare you, but they are. Um, so we're much more careful now about putting kids through tonsillectomies. Um, and the important thing is, is that the number of episodes of tonsillitis is not at all to do this. You can have 10 episodes of tonsillitis in a year and not have your tonsils removed. Okay? The key thing is the effect on the function of the kid. So if a kid's missing lots and lots of school, is not meeting his, developmental, um, his or her developmental milestones, then you may wish to consider um, referring to an ENT surgeon for consideration of tonsillectomy. But in my experience, I've referred two or three kids for tonsillectomy and all of them have come back. Okay? It's not often done anymore. But bear in mind, it used to be done. Okay, so when you're looking at people's throats, don't be alarmed if you don't see any tonsils. Okay, that's ENT. Over to Stephen. It's all right, I can take some now. I'll take photos. No, no, no. Surprise yourself. No, no. Okay. How did you get um, screen? Hmm? You just do this. Shift command 